Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Our guest today is Suzanne Schneider, who is the Deputy Director at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, where, in addition to teaching, she oversees program execution, development initiatives, and institutional partnerships. She received her BA, MA, and PhD from the Department of Middle East, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. An interdisciplinary scholar working in the fields of history, religious studies, and political theory, Suzanne's research interests relate to Jewish and Islamic modernism, religious movements in the modern Middle East, the history of modern Palestine, Israel, secularism, and political identity. She's also a regular contributor to The Revealer, a review of religion and media, and she is the author of today's, uh, the subject of today's interview, Mandatory Separation, Religion, Education, and Mass Politics in Palestine, out 2018 from Stanford University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So we always start off with a bit of a biographical question. So if you can give us a bit of your intellectual biography, like the inception of this project, and also just because you work at quite a unique place, the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, you can tell us a bit about that. Sure. So maybe I'll start there. That's uh, the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research is about seven years old. It's a um, interdisciplinary nonprofit education and research center. We're based here in New York City, but we are actually operating in five other states nationwide. And the core of our mission is really trying to bridge the gap between academic and public life. Um, we create a lot of public programming that is intends to bring the kind of conversations, really critical conversations that are typically sequestered in university spaces and make them broadly accessible for working adults in environments that are still rather structured. So we run about, for example, uh, 85 graduate style seminars every year here in New York City that, you know, on everything from history to literature and political theory, theoretical mathematics, kind of the list goes on. Um, everything's kind of built around the lives of uh, working adults. Um, and in addition, we do a number of other kind of associated programs. We run a podcast, do public events, um, and just in you know, a whole range of programming that kind of tees off this idea of connecting academic and public life. Okay, I have a few questions about that, actually. So <laughs> no, I'm just curious, because I'm, I'm trying to think about how people fit this into their lives. And clearly, I was looking at the website, like, these classes are sold out. Like, they're full. Yeah, we have, I mean, we have about 1500 students a year. So, you know, we're kind of we joke that we're like running a small liberal arts college on like, a you know, a fairly shoestring budget. But, um, you know, um, everything is built around the lives of working adults. So that means courses are in the evenings or they're on weekends. The, we work extremely hard on creating syllabi that are um, very kind of tailored and, um, and curated for each class, right? You can't assign somebody who has a full-time job, like a 300-page monograph plus two articles and be like, okay, meet me here for a discussion next week. So a lot of this um, comes in the way that we design our curricula, 
um, that, you know, I think that the, but our experiences both here in on the East Coast and also out in the Midwest where we have a program called Network is that the public is genuinely hungry for this, that the, you know, it is absurd that one should have to go back to, say, a master's program if you want to, you know, learn about history or political theory or any number of things, right? Maybe you just want to take a class on Homer. Why do you have to go do that in some sort of graduate program or some very expensive continuing education program? So the Institute is really filling, I think, a, a clear need and, you know, just facilitating a more robust exchange of intellectual ideas in the public sphere. And similarly, for our faculty, um, you know, we really encourage faculty who are working across disciplines who have a very clear stake, uh, a very clear vision about what is at stake in the, you know, uh, kind of, you know, uh, in the academic subject, subjects that they work on, a capacity to connect that knowledge to other areas of life. Um, and we you know, encourage our faculty to do uh, a lot of public-facing um, publishing, so not necessarily publishing in journals, but rather trying to publish in much more mainstream sources and to really bring these academic conversations, again, into places where they will be more widely accessible. So how did you get there? What's, I mean, how did you get there from doing your PhD at Columbia to basically running this program and doing teaching as well. <laughs> so my um, the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, um, as the name kind of might suggest, is kind of founded in the um, in the image uh, of the Institute for Social Research uh, from Frankfurt and Frankfurt School uh, of Critical Theory. It was created by a very close friend of mine, Ajay Singh Chaudhary, uh, uh, while we were in graduate school together. So there is a Columbia connection that kind of runs through all of this. And uh, Ajay and I have been friends for just, you know, like 15 years. Um, and after I finished my PhD, um, I, you know, started teaching at the Institute and then soon after joined our executive committee um, and working together, we really took this, which was a, a much smaller operation um, and transformed it into this, you know, fully functioning nonprofit institute. Um, you know, it, it was it was the work that I wanted to be doing. It was frankly just a lot more exciting to me than um, some of the more traditional academic paths. I saw that there was a profound need for it. Um, and it allows, you know, my brain is sometimes kind of all over the place, like I, and, uh, in terms of the things that I'm interested in. And, um, the incredible thing about teaching at the Institute is I get to kind of pursue all of those little, you know, all of those little tangents can become classes, they can become articles, they can become, you know, something of substance. And so it gives me an enormous amount of freedom, um, in designing classes that are really, you know, uh, tied to whatever contemporary issue I'm thinking of right now. And I think that that's an incredible thing. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I always that we are the administration. So that is also something that sweetens the deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, I, I think it's important to recognize that the academy is not the only place to produce scholarship, that historically, there have been many other sites for the production of scholarship, and that particularly given all of the various crises that are gripping the academy, um, we have to think about what alternatives might look like for the 21st century. Yeah, I'm really excited just because this is a new wave, I think, in the academy, um, outside of the academy, recognizing that there are multiple roles that people who produce research can be occupying while they continue to produce research. Um, so I'm really excited to see this develop. And I mean, I mean, I, th I think that these things, it's, it's inter interesting for me to hear that 
these things start small. It's encouraging to hear this as well. And they grow and they snowball and they become these big enterprises. And I think that that's more encouraging to someone like me who's more ju- much, much, much more junior. And I think yeah. how to involve myself in these things. Yeah, I mean, like, it, you know, like anything, if you look, you know, what we're like, you know, if we look, I look back on the progress we've made over the last four years, and it is incredible. Um, but, you know, certainly we had hoped that this would happen, you know, when we were sitting around my dining room table, often with my kids, like running amok around us thinking about how to plan a curriculum. But like, it wasn't, there's nothing inevitable about that. And, um, you know, but we, I think we do need more of this kind of scholarly experimentation. Um, and that, and a lot of it kind of connects to the way that we choose to think about the public sphere, the, the space outside of um, kind of uh, academia and the recognition that, you know, the public is neither stupid nor disinterested. Um, in fact, they are hungry for this type of work and they're looking for more of it. Okay. We're definitely going to include a link to the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research when we put this interview up. So that way people can check out the classes and see what else you have to offer just to create more demand than there already is more <laughs> work for you. So um, what about this project specifically? What brought you to the subject of Mandate Palestine when you were thinking of your dissertation? Yeah, so this, you said, as you mentioned, this grew out of a, you know, a dissertation I did at Columbia um, a number of years ago. And, and, and truly, it grew out of the reading and studying I was doing around my oral exams, um, where I was very interested in kind of, uh, you know, what, what, what we could bunch under the loose umbrella of modernism, modernist movements, both within uh, Jewish and Islamic contexts. Um, and these kind of articulated themselves in a variety of reform platforms, uh, you know, beginning in the late 18th and kind of stretching through the you know, middle of the 20th century, um, that in various ways and with their kind of own, um, you know, points of distinction, uh, viewed their societies as inadequate um, vis-a-vis the yardstick of uh, kind of Christian European society. And I became interested on how religious education in particular became a favorite punching bag. Um, and you saw this, you know, in the writings from, you know, everyone from the kind of from the Haskalah through the, you know, Arab, Arab Nahta and the um, kind of Islamic modernist movements, that the reform of religious education suddenly became a key social and political priority, almost a panacea that would kind of fix a whole range of other issues. And so despite the fact that these were, you know, happening in, in, in this was happening in quite different contexts, I became interested by this, um, you know, initial area of overlap. Um, and, you know, looking at the history of education in Palestine, you really have not had a lot that's been written on that since the 50s. Um, you know, Abdul Latif Tabawi was an education, education inspector, in, inspector during the mandate period, and he wrote the kind of, you know, um, the basic text about uh, education in Mandate Palestine, I believe that book was published in the 50s. So it seemed like a subject that was kind of due for a, um, a, a refresh and that by looking at the, um, you know, by looking at religious education in the Jewish and Islamic communities in Palestine, by matching that up with the British and their own thoughts about, you know, religion and education, uh, I would have a very rich uh, amount of data and a very, you know, a rich pool of sources to draw on. And that, you know, turned out to be the case. Yeah, that's one thing I really respect about the book is that, I mean, obviously the political history is important to the book because you're talking about the mandate and the British are present during the mandate of Palestine. Um, but 
one of my frustrations with Palestinian uh, history for a very long time has been that it's focused so much on the political without recognizing the social and the cultural and intellectual folds into it. And I think this book, I mentioned this to someone yesterday, this book was one of the first social and cultural histories I've read in a very long time. Um, And I was just astounded by how dense it was with the sources too. I mean, how many, how different types, different types of sources you utilize effectively, like memoirs, but also going to the British archives. And then clearly you understood both what was happening to the Jewish populations and the Arab populations. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, um, right. There's a, a longstanding tendency to write about the mandate period through what's been called the dual society model, which essentially posits that there are these two um, really, you know, segregated communities, a Jewish community and an Arab community that kind of developed in parallel, but that had very little to do with one another. Um, and, you know, for all sorts of reasons, I think that that narrative needs um, review. And frankly, you know, it can, it can get thrown, it can get thrown into the dustbin because there's a few problems with it. One is that it projects a level of separatism onto the past, which is actually still in the process of formation during the mandate period. And by doing that, it also uh, prevents us from seeing how discrete policies that were pursued during the mandate period, for example, by the British with regard to education, by the decision to never try to educate Jewish and Arab children together in the same school system, right? Um, How these things actually produce this separatism that we then take for granted and project onto the past as this just mere continuation of, you know, whatever was happening in Ottoman Palestine. Um, So the kind of communalism and the separatism that happens and accelerates in the mandate period, I argue, is, is quite distinct from that which existed during, um, you know, late on in Palestine. Uh, but we miss that fact and we miss that transformative, um, the transformative impact of the mandate period if we kind of adopt these dual society models and just kind of chug along as if, you know, everything was just running in parallel but never really crossing. So since you're speaking of dualisms, I think it's an appropriate time to ask. So the British come into the picture through the mandate and then there's also this concept of dual obligation, the fact that the Brits owe something to the Palestinian Arabs and they owe something to the Jewish population as well. So how relevant is that to understanding the mandate? I mean, I think that it's um, it, it gestures at this kind of impossible situation that they've, you know, got themselves into where they've, you know, they have a they have like an they have a problem to solve, but they've tied their own hands from the beginning. Um, and what one of the interesting things is to looking at education is it kind of offers a microcosm at just how haphazard British policy was, how really in the absence of any clear policy, they were just muddling their way through and how they, you know, somehow viewed that as, you know, being in the service of both communities. Um, but, you know, there it is incredible when you read these archival documents that, you know, the education officers and who are you know, just a quick, like as an aside, one important thing to note about uh, the you know, case of Palestine is that the um, education administrators were uh, at the higher levels were exclusively British. Right. They didn't have uh, they had, they were Jewish and Arab inspectors that were used for the various school systems. But the actual administration was exclusively British. It was very top down. It was very kind of colonial in the, in the classical sense. Um, so, I mean, what you what 
you know, what you see, though, with regard to education is that they just could not articulate what the policy was. <laughs> like They really didn't other than, you know, or they would articulate what a policy was and then they would pursue goal. They would pursue, you know, um, they, they would pursue decisions that were kind of diametrically opposed to that policy goal. Um, and it's very hard to understand what's going on here if you don't understand the level of just muddle, muddling through that was the kind of overarching, um, you know, disposition. And, um, and, 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 and approach to solving these kind of insoluble problems. So speaking of the British experience, I mean, them muddling through things, that's not something I haven't heard from um, historians of South Asia, um, mm-hmm. historians of Africa. It's quite, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's something that's been in the historiography for about the last 20 or so years, but it's still something we need to press because I think there's this vision of, of, of the British, of the French, and in their colonial experiments, just sort of being these um, diabolical overlords. And I think seeing them as muddling is almost more, it sees it demonstrates the damage they did to these communities even more effectively. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a few things to kind of pick up off from that. One is that the, you know, the looking at the other colonial examples, particularly um, in, for education, India, Egypt, and Nigeria uh, is incredibly instructive. Um, it, it, it really informs the way that the British think about uh, native education, the way that they think about religion and religious education, religious institutions and structures and modes of authority. But it's also interesting because the uh, education director in Palestine viewed himself as kind of an enlightened uh, update of those classic colonial administrators who wanted to restrict native access to education. Um, and he was almost like the budding um, advocate of you know, vocational training. So not that one should completely restrict education, but that the right education was actually crucial to maintaining the Palestine social structure. So in order to prevent the peasantry from migrating off of the land and thus, right, moving to the cities where they would become uh, vagabonds or maybe even communists, God forbid, what one had to do was give them the right type of agricultural education, which would rationalize the rural economy and enable people to stay on the land. So there's this kind of interesting dialectic where the modern and the new is the thing that was required in order to maintain the traditional, right? Um, And it is an essentially conservative project, but it was always presented in this language of a kind of progressive departure from the mistakes of colonial administrators of old. So that's kind of one fascinating thing to note. Um, the second is that, you know, and in with regard to the muddling through, I think that in the in the realm of education, that also relates to a per- peculiar British view of what education was. Um, and, I, and I argue, you know, they very much view this as a kind of an exercise in neutral character formation. Um, and within such a, a view, anything that was quote unquote political was inherently corrupting. And the goal is truly to keep politics uh, out of the classroom. Now, politics is defined in a very particular way here, essentially being mass politics and nationalist politics in particular. Education, I argue, is a right. It's it's, it's a political exercise through and through. Curricula are supervised by the state. They are inspected by state inspectors. They are funded by taxpayer dollars. So the notion that education exists in some plane that is not political um, is is a lie. It does not in British Palestine, not in contemporary America, nowhere. Right? That there is an essentially political component to this. And um, in what's interesting is that the Ottomans actually understood that much better than the British did, and they viewed. 
the schools, um, and you know, they never reached the school, but they did view the schools as a something that had a you know a, a role in inculcating a sense of shared Ottoman identity that would theoretically be open to all the populations of the empire and that could solve and could serve this productive political role. In viewing education as something which was distinct from and separate from politics, the British would never articulate such a goal. They didn't think about education as a um, as, as a as, as a kind of fielding ground on which they through which they could solve political or social problems. They viewed education as something that should be kept apart from that because if it was not kept apart from the political, then it was corrupted in its very essence. So you mentioned the Ottomans, and I want to sort of. Um go back to that because during the Ottoman period, you begin to see the distinction between public and private education in the region, at least. Um, you see the emergence of, for example, the Allianz schools, which are, are, are Jewish schools. Um, you begin to see education and, and Egypt is quite a unique example, but um, Egypt begins to take on its own role in building its own curriculum, even though it's semi-independent and then it's occupied by the British. So it's, it's not quite an Ottoman uh, experience. And then, of course, in the case of Palestine, um, the most famous example is Khalid Kakini school. Um, so can you explain to us the difference between uh, public and private education in Mandate Palestine and the implication it has for both populations living in Palestine, the Arab and the Jewish? Yeah, so the public-private thing is really dicey, and it was. Um, you know, I have a whole chapter really just about this that works outward from what is ostensibly a very boring document, which is an education ordinance. Now, what's interesting about the education ordinance is that it took them about six years of drafts and revisions in order to produce a document that could kind of pass muster um, because the issue was so incredibly contentious. And a lot of that has to do with the way that kind of public and private are being um, are, are thought of and are also are being kind of uh, concretized through the enactment of this legislation. So the way the um, the way the British decide to go about this is that they recognize that Palestine actually has two public school systems, which means there's the kind of government system of public schools, which uh, serves the Palestinian Arabs, but they recognize the uh, schools of the Zionist organization as a separate public school system. Now, these schools already existed, or, you know, uh, about 40 of these schools already existed, um, you know, prior to the First World War. Um, but they were, yeah, they were private institutions, much like the Allianz schools or much like Augusturia, like the school from uh, Khalil Sakakini that you mentioned, right? And these are things that are kind of surrounding an Ottoman public space rather than directly competing with it. What happens in the mandate period is that you have the elevation of one of those private spaces to a kind of parallel public space, Um and so not only is it given government recognition as being a public school system, but it has its own administration, it has its own department of education, its own director of education, its own inspectorate, it has its own language of instruction. Um, and you quickly move to a point where you have, you know, just, you know, these parallel school systems, one teaching in Hebrew, one teaching in Arabic, um, with, you know, again, incredibly, totally different administrative in, administrations and very different curricular priorities that is, uh, and that all of this is given not just government sanction, but government funding, because these are recognized as public institutions. So one of the things, one of the phrases I enjoy from the book, and you have such choice little phrases here and there that I would just write them down uh, in my notes, uh, is the, the term conceptual fuzziness around religion. I think this is with regards to the way that the Brits approached this when they were governing the mandate. Um, so 
how was the category of religion blurred and with what other social and cultural categories? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important, particularly for um, not just for historians, but really for anyone who writes about religion to understand that, right, religion is not just an abstraction, but it's also a contested abstraction. What it means is by no means clear. Um, and, you know, somebody asked me at a book talk if I could define religion and I just said, no, right. Like the, like, absolutely not. I mean, the, the, you, we have, a, we have these working definitions that we use, but the thing to understand about religion is, you know, I, there's a few things to understand. One is that what we commonly think about as religion, particularly in say the States or kind of Western context is really Protestantism right, is a vision of religion that is faith-based, that is restricted to the uh, private sphere, that kind of hinges on this distinction between the material and the spiritual, the civic and the, um, um, you know, the, the civic and the spiritual, and that our whole, you know, tradition of liberalism kind of comes out of this split. It's articulated, you know, forcefully by Martin Luther. It's picked up on by John Locke and really, you know, and, 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 and articulated kind of, you know, through our political theory, you know, down to our, down to our own time. Um, and it's, of course, also projected onto the rest of the world as a universal, right? And this is a particularism that it parades as a false universal. So that is the first thing to know, and that other communities and other places have, you know, an uh, entirely different vision about what religion is, the role of, say, law or hermeneutics within religion versus faith, the role of uh, communal practice, the role of the public sphere, you know, um, and, and, and so we just, you know, have to be very cognizant of that. So, you know, speaking with regard to the, you know, Jewish and Islamic context, right, these are traditions that are both, um, you know, they have a certain kind of a parallel structure in that they both have a, a, a very elaborate uh, um, you know, practice of jurisprudence and commentary and interpretation that goes far beyond reading the original text. Uh, that is all you know, important that they kind of bridge this gap between the public and the private sphere, um, this kind of mind-body like, um, uh, or, or, or body-soul dualism that we find to be so prevalent in, in Christian context doesn't really track into them in the same way. So, you know, what is religious for the British is a very different question than, say, what is religious for a, you know, a Jew or Muslim during the mandate period. Um, and so one of the utmost challenges for us then as historians is to avoid uh, the kind of anachronistic projection of our own about what religion constitutes back onto the past. Um, you know, one great example of this that I mentioned in the book is that in the mid-30s, the British tried to convene this, um, uh, tried to convene a union between the representatives of the Zionist organization in Palestine and the Zionist community in Palestine and those of Agudat Yisrael. Agudat Yisrael, for the unfamiliar, is the kind of leading anti-Zionist orthodox political party that's um, during the mandate period. And the British are concerned that there are these two Jewish communities and it's screwing everything up on the, you know, administrative and the sectarian level because it's just, you said, through all sorts of absurdities, the Orthodox are not included as part of Palestine's official Jewish community. They're not eligible for funding for various things. Um, So the British are interested in trying to heal the schism that they actually created, right? Um, And the negotiations though quickly fall apart because the parties involved have very different ideas about what is religious. So the Zionist organization comes and say, okay, we will give you religion. You can have control over the rabbinate, over, you know, burial, 
it's over kind of the, the kosher slaughtering. That's the religious stuff. You can have that stuff. We're going to keep all of the, you know, economic, political and social stuff because that's not religious. Um, and the uh, representatives from Agudat Yisrael say, no, 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 no. If we get the religious stuff, then we also get uh, education and we also get kind of health care and the care of the sick and these like various welfare programs. Right. And the notion that there is that kind of clear line between the, what is the religious and what is the secular is something that you see. Um, kind of just, uh, you know, disintegrate in the course of this conversation where the uh, protagonists involved are coming at this with two very different ideas about whether such a line even exists, and if so, where one would situate it. I think that's one of, I mean, these issues of translation come up repeatedly in the field, and I think one of the biggest, one of the biggest restrictions on our work is that we work in the English language. We can't necessarily communicate these things as they're being articulated. So one of, I mean, in, in Islamic studies, I feel like one of the biggest issues um, is, and, and you, you encounter some of these terms in the, over the course of your book. Um, well, I mean, there's the idea of prayer in Islam. It's not quite prayer in the same way uh, to do salah in the Islamic tradition. is isn't quite what prayer is in the Christian tradition, but it's actually quite similar to some forms of worship in the Jewish tradition. And then you have the terms mom and that's an aribadat, and that's also, I mean, aribadat is worship, but it's also practices and it's, it's very hard to, I mean, to, to, to translate. I would appreciate actually that you include the term that's or very loosely worship as you discuss it and, and you try to preserve the original terms. Um, it keeps that richness, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's always a challenge. You don't want to like overwhelm your readers with these kind of, you know, foreign terminology, but at the same time, you want your readers to understand that you're excavating a different conceptual universe than the one that they have. Um, and that our common sense is not necessarily shared or universal. And I think that that is just a very important thing for you know, particular people who are thinking about religion um, to, to, to try to grapple with is that, you know, other people's kind of, you know, conceptual maps, uh, are, uh, even with when what they think about religion might be entirely different than the one that they're used to from growing up in a Western context. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that you also just to rehash, uh, you drew our eyes to the fact that religion itself is a contested uh, category, because I think we have so much, and you alluded to this earlier, theory of how religion functions. And there are some things that are common to certain religions, but ultimately a lot of the theory of develop originates from either Catholicism or Protestantism or the Abrahamic faith. Sometimes the Abrahamic faiths don't fit for the other faiths, for the Brahmic religions, um, the Dharma case, excuse me. Um, so it's, I'm, I'm glad that you try to maintain this. And I think this is increasingly an approach within the field to see these categories as um, not translatable and, and an, ex, an attempt to explicate exactly how they function within their context. And this is a great example because it grounds uh, these terms in lived context, how people actually function, how education was contested between all of these parties. And I, I really enjoy that about the book. Um, so religion, is it a force for change or is it a force for stability? Because as you mentioned, this is, all of these events are happening after, well, at least with regards to the Islamic tradition, um, this wave of Islamic reformism. Um, so how is religion a force for stability, a force for change, and how did the British see it? Because they were the ones overseeing all of the, inspecting the schools, um, trying to set curriculum. 
I mean, so at the most basic level, religion is an abstraction. Religion is all, they're historical objects. Um, so they're in their incredibly rich historical objects with, you know, multiple interpretive, uh, traditions with source texts that are often contradictory to one another. Um, and all of that should point us to the fact that there is nothing essential about the way that religion functions at any place in time. Um, that for certainly for the British colonial administration, um, and not just for them, right. For kind of the rulers of, of, you know, the Ottoman state and the, you know, uh, toward the end of the 19th century for any number of, um, of others, right. Religion was viewed, um, kind of to gloss, uh, to borrow like Jonathan Berkey's terms, like more as a, um, a source of, stability rather than a kind of a source of change, right? That this was a conservative project of, um, of, uh, of maintaining the social and political status quo and that religion seemed to be a handy way to do that. If you think about the way that religion has been used to legitimate rulers, for example, um, you know, you can see some, some, some of that thinking about, you know, divine rights of kingship and all of that good stuff in a Christian context or the, you know, the, uh, the, the dependence on the ulama to kind of, you know, certify the new caliph, even, you know, after the fact on the other, you know, within uh, an Islamic context. So, but that said, Mike, there's nothing essential about this. And so the British very much viewed religion as a source of stability um, uh, of, of the political status quo. Um, and what they miss is that these reform movements, which, you know, have been kind of gaining strength throughout the 19th century, are articulating something quite different, which is a you know vision of religion, which will be kind of at the forefront of all sorts of political and social transformations. Um, and that that is th- th- those kind of those differing views of religion um, come into come to clash with one another quite strongly in Palestine during the mandate period. Um, and arguably it is the one religion as this kind of radical or revolutionary social force is the one that has carried the day for much of the 20th century. And so one of the interesting things is when you talk to people today and you t- tell them that, you know, there was once a time a hundred years ago where the rulers of the Middle East thought that religion was this kind of like socially conservative force that would kind of keep everything under wraps. And they look at you like you're crazy because this, our thinking on this has right. And kind of certainly policy circles has done 180 degree spin where now religion seems to be at the forefront of all sorts of kind of, you know, whether it's ISIS or kind of radical settler yeshivas, right. That it, religion seems to be the problem. Um, religion is the, the, the source of radicalism. So, all of this is to say we shouldn't think about it as this essential category at all. There is no um, reason, you know, necessarily that it should play one role versus another. You can find the most reactionary or the most emancipatory interpretations within religion. Um, uh, I, I just, you know, I, so I think that we should just, you know, to, to understand it as a contested category that, you know, it, adherents themselves are constantly in the process of battling over, you know, what the tradition means and what it demands in any particular um, instance. That is the important piece for us as scholars. Something I appreciated about the book was that you uh, drew our eyes to the way, I mean, this is part of this narrative of contestations, um, the fact that at least in the Islamic context in Mandate Palestine, there was this focus on individual morals in particular um, in the curriculum. Um, so how did this relate to other trends in contemporary Arab thought? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, 
you 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 see almost you I think that this grows very much out of a, a modernist movement that will think about um, um, a kind of almost like streamlined view of what Islam is. Um, and so much of that will involve kind of stripping away layers of, you know, legal commentaries and communal practices and the kind of uh, classic Salafi fashion of trying to go back to the core of something. Um, part of that also just relates to this notion that Islam, you know, if it's defined in these kind of like moral terms, um, then it actually is a it, it's a, it's a very restricted view then of what Islam is that cedes a huge amount of space to kind of secularism or to the market or to politics to be non-Islamic, right? To say that Islam is primarily about individual morality is also to say that it is not about kind of communal politics. It is not about commerce. It is not about science and it's not about a lot of other things. Um, and, you know, you, this links quite closely also to trends in religious education in Europe, which come, uh, you know, which are Brit the British very much bring with them to, you know, various contexts they govern, not just in Palestine, but also in Egypt and Iraq, that views the traditional ways of, uh, of education in the Qutab particularly around things like memorization to be really devoid of meaning. Um, and that the, the, the important thing should not be reciting the text, which is right. It's an oral project. It's communal. It's always communally mediated. The, the, the purpose should rather be the individual reading silently by themselves right? Um, and, and reading for these kind of the core or the essence of what a text or a passage is trying to convey. So, you 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 have the really the um, a transformation even just you know, something as, as as simple as kind of the recitation of the Quran um, from something which is viewed as you know principally uh, social communally mediated that is linked to all sorts of different structures of re religious authority to something that increasingly be, is regarded as um, uh, as a practice that the individual does on their own silently and that you're reading for meaning you're not reading for kind of ritual practice or experience or embodiment or any of these other things so how, what were children actually taught during the mandate period on both sides because I can totally I have these visions of the children not being forced to memorize in a group setting anymore um, and not necessarily having their education limited to the Quran or certain other texts. So what were they actually learning on both sides of the Jewish and then the Arab sides? Well, so there, I mean, the, on the, in the Arab public system, which is the kind of the government schools, um, they're kind of, most of them are, are kind of like, they're, you know, for all of their claims as being something entirely different, they're kind of like Kutab 2.0, right? <laughs> Reading, writing, arithmetic are still very much the basis. Um, they do, they do still use some memorization only in, uh, the, t for the Quran, but they kind of break it down into, um, these kind of like, like rational chunks that you would, you know, memorize everyone together. And then there are lessons that go along with it that will kind of stress the like ethical and moral meanings of each passage. Um, it's very, you, you see the development really for the first time of these textbooks for religious education, which are incredibly didactic, uh, which are meant to guide children down this very narrow interpretive path, which will you know provide like almost like a glossary of difficult, difficult terms. It will provide maybe a passage of text and then we'll kind of um, guide them um, again in this incredibly didactic fashion about what they're supposed to deduce from this. Um, you, you know, on the, on the, on the Jewish side, what's, you know, what's fascinating is that like most of the scholarship we have about the Zionist school system has kind of taken 
Zionists at their word that religious that religion was just not that important to you know mainstream Zionists, particularly during this period. We associate this as being you know Zionism is dominated by socialism, uh, dominated by the labor movement, um, and so you know people who have worked on religious education in the issue, those are typically institutionally bound studies that say look at the Mizrahi political movement, which is the religious Zionists, or looking at like the old issue. Um, you know, we've less energy has been uh, extended looking at the ways that religion might kind of rear its ugly head in these places where it's supposedly not supposed to be. So either in the, the labor schools or in the general Zionist schools. But here, too, you see a, an, an emphasis on certainly the Hebrew Bible as the kind of core of the of the curriculum, which is a kind of an old um you know, an old Zionist uh, proclivity of, of, of regarding the Hebrew Bible as the, the as as the kind of the nation's textbook uh, and the nation's history all in one. Um, you know, even you f- you find shocking things about this. Even you know, as late as the 1950s in the state of Israel, um, I forget what I think it was the fourth graders. Um, you know, there was there was this kind of talk about how the they, they didn't re- they didn't need a history curriculum because they read the Bible. Right. Um, and the, just even in these very, you know, left leaning contexts, the degree to which the Bible stood in for any sort of like what we might think of as, as modern history is, is fairly astounding. So where is identity amidst all of this? I mean, how are people thinking about what it is to be Muslim, what it is to be a Palestinian Arab, what it is to be a Jew, what it is to be Zionist amidst all of this? Is their identity formation being imprinted and coded into how people are being taught? Yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, this, it, this too is, is is rather contested. I mean, one of the cases that I look at on the Palestinian side um, is the uh, El Nijah school in, uh, in Nablus, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, created by a kind of a group of like, you know, notables in Nablus itself. But then his headmaster during the mandate period is Izzat Darwaza, who is, of course, very active in the Palestinian nationalist movement, particularly in the Istiqlal party. Um, and is kind of at the forefront of trying to create a nationalist politics that doesn't go along confessional lines. So even though, um, you know, El Nijah, the school kind of will, uh, includes, you know, a, a huge amount of religious education, they are trying to always do this in a way that the, you know, sectarianism is, is downplayed. So, um, there's a lot of curriculum materials that talk about how, you know, because of the unique structure of Islam as a religion that doesn't force its uh, own beliefs and practices on other communities, that Islam allows for this religious freedom such that kind of, um, you know, all Arabs can be united in an Islamic civilization, even those who are Christian. Um, and the school does include Christians, you know, from, from its earliest days among its, among its student body. Um, you know, similarly, certain religious holidays are like or, or obligations like the Hajj are kind of presented in curricular materials as being national obligations or national, you know, kind of uh, holidays rather than things that are kind of explicitly Islamic. Uh, it, it, so you do see there, I think, this attempt to rethink um rethink the nature of identity to create this kind of non-sectarian politics. Um, you know, on the, on the, in the Zionist side, I think that you have the opposite going on where the kind of all of those links that might link uh, Jews to other individuals, to Christians, to Muslims, uh, to just, you know, their people who are around them are kind of incredibly increasingly being closed off. Um, 
And the view that is being developed is one of a kind of Jewish people that moves through history that, um, you know, and, and, and they are the kind of prime, um, they're the prime protagonist through this historical movement. There may be other groups that they interact with along the way, but they don't really affect them. There's not really any um, change that happens as a result. Um, so I, you know, I think that there's, you know, the identity is becoming actually very constrained within the, in, in the Zionist context. So I just want to congratulate you on the book again, because it's such an achievement, both, I mean, bringing us a social and a cultural history of the mandate and the mandate and all of its complexity. It's really quite an accomplishment, but also one thing I appreciate about the book is that you are so, um, attentive to how you pay tribute to other scholars and that sort of generosity is not something we always see in our field. So I, I love that about it. I mean, I saw that in another colleagues of, uh, a colleague of yours, Seth Enziska's book as well, where he just was so assiduous about how he uh, called attention to other people's work. So in many different regards, it's an accomplishment. Well, thank you. I mean, we said we don't, none, none, this is always a communal project. Um, you know, we always kind of stand on the shoulders of everyone who came before us. So that should just, you know, be acknowledged as, <laughs> because that is just the truth. So what future projects do you currently have on your desk? So I'm actually working on a new project now about religion and violence in the modern age um, that in some ways picks up on the last kind of in the conclusion, in the last you know few pages of my dissertation where I start talking about, you know, is religion this kind of conservative and uh, reactionary force? Is it this radical force? Is it this emancipatory force? Um, and so, you know, using this set of questions, I'm interested in kind of contemporary manifestations of religious violence, um, you know, particularly within Islam, right? These are often narrated poorly as, uh, you know, the kind of uh, a holdover from some sort of like medieval barbarism. Now, scholars know that that's not the case, but still a lot of the works that we have um, are almost like, they're more like journalistic or sociological account, like attempts to have, like, I'm going to take you inside ISIS and, you know, that which is, that has its role, but I guess I want to do something more like a political theory and a, um, a political economy of uh, religious violence as it's kind of manifesting today, uh, thinking about the n- new forms of subjectivity and authority that are being enacted, um, thinking about the way that these movements relate to things like gun violence in America, thinking about the role of kind of political nihilism um, and the uh, and political nihilism within the, the pr- very particular context here with a kind of triumph of neoliberalism crises of democracy, that there's a, there's a lot that's getting wrapped up here, uh, wrapped up here. Um, and, and I think that that is relevant and that should weigh upon us as we start to think about, you know, these forms of violence. Um, and, you know, it, I think it will move us definitively away from any notion that this is kind of theological, that this is just latent and kind of waiting to manifest itself in some sort of essential or eternal way and really underline the way that kind of the conditions of modernity create these new religious formations. That's a really exciting and worthwhile project because I'm a little, I think we have a little bit of, um, I have a lot of, not a little bit, a lot of fatigue from projects that go through religious texts and then point out where they're violent and then sort of try to trace a genealogy of how these texts. Oh, it's so bad. I mean, but, but, and, you know, and even some of these are useful in a limited sense, but like, if I want to talk about, if I want to, talk about the history of kind of contemporary violence as, you know, as it's been manifested, say, the last, you know, 30 or 40 years within Islam and these kind of various, you know, groups which have sprung up, like, 
that is a conversation that does not actually begin with eventimia. That is a conversation that does not begin with, you know, the, 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 the so-called like sword verse. But um, we have so many works that that is exactly it. It's like, well, I'm going to show you the verses in the Quran that have to do with violence. And then we're going to show you their medieval application. And then we're going to jump to the modern period. And here they are in, in, in practice. Um, so, you know, the one of the great, I think, advantages of being historians when we look at questions like this is to say, OK, well, if we are to believe that religions uh, in general and Islam in particular are kind of inherently prone to violence, then why is it that, you know, we have all of these kind of non-state actors or terrorist groups that spring up over the last, say, 40 years and not in like, I don't know, 1920 or not in like 1860 or not in like, I don't know, 1710? What? Like, right, what is it about the present that leads to this proliferation of groups? Because if this is if this is essential or an eternal, then you would expect to see this throughout our history. But that's not actually the case. So, you know, bringing that historical perspective to bear on this question, I think, is incredibly important. But then similarly, I think, you know, in order to really understand what's going on here, we have to move beyond the kind of theological and thinking really through the lens of political theory about the type of political subject that um, that, that that these groups are 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 are. are are creating really, um, and the way that that interacts with a variety of other kind of economic, political, okay. and social. I wish you the best of luck with that project, just because it sounds like it's going to be really worthwhile. And I think, you know, I just hope you finish it quite soon so that I can assign it to whatever. I know. I'm- I, I, I like like all young scholars. I am like I'm like always working on it in like the you know 45 minutes a week I have where I'm not like preparing for class, or running the institute, or like you know uh, making lunch for the kids or something. You know? Yeah. Well, I hope you get some time to sit down and really work on it because of, that. And of course, thank all the other wonderful thank things you. you. I, I hope so as well. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.